The This I Believe platforms are some of my favorite platforms that we offer at West. Our This I Believe platform, of course, is based on the National Public Radio uh, series, This I Believe. It is no longer on the air, although you can hear thousands of essays that have been written over the years on um, NPR.org, which I invite you to do. And um, that series, of course, was based on the Edward R. Murrow series in the early 50s. Um, and I'm hopeful that these, these stories, these This I Believe offerings from our members will kind of serve as an invitation for you to carve out some time and to um, get down on paper what you would say if you were up here. What story would you tell to capture a core principle that guides your life, a belief that underlies your actions? And so I want to thank our presenters this morning, and we will start with John Mulligan. John Mulligan and his partner Annie Shiner have been members here for less than a year. And John is teaching a class called Creating Your Life, which I know we will want to repeat over and over. It is every single week he gets more and more participants in it. It's a wonderful, wonderful class. And he is also, as is Annie, very active in this new project that we have at West called Painting Sunlight, a year of living creatively. And you'll be hearing more about that over the year. But um, that beautiful, beautiful poster that they, um, the two of them made um, we'll have in the lobby so that you can see it um, a little bit later. So, John. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my topic today is uh, freedom is a value and I want to pose a question to you. The question is, do you support the freedom of people to attempt to live their lives as they choose? It is easy to answer this question in the abstract. Of course, we say. It is easy to answer this question in the case of people we don't know and aren't involved with. But oddly, when the people are closer to home and are the ones we care about most, our spouse, our partner, our family, our friends, a close examination may be revealing. After all, those around us affect us, and we care about them. The proverbial top left off the toothpaste tube. The disagreeable political opinion, being a vegetarian or a carnivore, is there some way you are tempted to change them? Is someone you know supposed to do something because it would somehow be better for you? Or you think it would be better for them? because it would help you get your needs met, or because then they would agree with you? The root of the word manipulation comes from the Latin word manus, meaning hand. The same root is found in the words manacle and manage. Have you ever been tempted to reach inside someone's head and push a hoped-for button that would change them magically? Change what they do or what they think so life would somehow be more satisfactory for you? you or you think for them? The puppet master sits above and uses his hand to make the puppet do what he wants. In real life, 
To manipulate someone is to make someone else a puppet of what you want, to, in a way, outlaw their freedom. When the issue of freedom comes up, the issue of sovereignty often also arises. Sovereignty has to do with the boundaries of control. Your freedom to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. Or you aren't free to throw your trash on my lawn. There are certainly times when as matters of law or self-defense, we may, as part of our freedom, assert our sovereignty. We can, in these cases, still support another's freedom to attempt to live his life as he chooses, while also working to limit their actual actions. I'd like to make a distinction between the issue of sovereignty and the issue of freedom as a value, whether you value others' minds, in a way, and the autonomy of their minds. So the question I am posing is about freedom as a value. Do I, gen do I genuinely value people's freedom? For me, as a practical matter, this is really broken down to two questions. First, do I value other people's freedom? And second, do I value and support my own freedom? Do I value other people's freedom above what my preferences happen to be? Do I actually support their freedom? This is not about a grudging, well, of course, it's his life, so he's free to do what he wants. Damn it. <laughs> That's simply recognition of reality, that you may not be able to have control. What I'm talking about is actually supporting their freedom, that even if you could, you wouldn't reach in and press the button inside their head because you were supporting their freedom. My teacher, Robert Fritz, introduced me to today's question. His wife, Rosalind, tells a story when she wants to illustrate it. When they were first married, Rosalind used to smoke. Sometimes Robert would light her cigarettes. It was clear to her that he valued her freedom. Even though Robert, as a matter of preference and concern for her health, would have liked her not to smoke, he supported her freedom to live her life as she chose. I have an idea that Barack Obama values freedom in this sense, and, this, and that this is the root of his famous unflappability. If one values and supports the freedom of others to have their own thoughts and to attempt to live their lives as they choose, there is no motivation to react and to try to change them, no matter what they say. Now, I think he also values and supports his own freedom, which includes acting in favor of his own beliefs, including presenting his own positions and making the most persuasive case for them. For me, learning to value and support my own freedom has been a difficult task, which still, is enga still engages me. I sometimes tend to outlaw my freedom to make mistakes, to look foolish, to have negative opinions of others, or sometimes to have glowing opinions, to be as I am, no matter what others think. I chose this topic today because in my life I found the chance to think through this question to be quite profound. A notable place this has made a difference for me is in my relationship with my father. He is now 92. He went to the old Western High School in DC, and his yearbook picture caption had two words, military and argumentative. <laughs> you get kind of what's happening. <laughs> He went on to become a career army officer and then a litigating lawyer, and in fact still practices law. I found growing up with my father difficult and confusing. He does not have opinions. 
Mind you, this is not because he's not opinionated, but because having an opinion suggests that there might be a way to think about things other than his way. In the last few years, I've been able to come to a place where I support his freedom, and even to support his freedom not to support my and others' freedom. I still have my difficult moments with him. I still don't like many of his opinions, and, some, and I sometimes have to remind myself to be clear about what I think and what I want, to support my own freedom as well as his. But without a need or desire to change him, I am able to see and accept him as he is, to value and actually support his freedom, and that opened the way for me to be in genuine relationship with him. I have learned, for example, of his desire for justice, which is what motivates him in his practice of law. More importantly than this positive practical outcome, I am in touch with a value that I have and is important to me. I hope to be consistent with that value. I invite you to notice, now or in the coming week, whether there are occasions when you might not be supporting others' freedom, especially the freedom of those close to you. And I invite you to take any such occasions as an opportunity to think through whether you're being consistent with your values in this area. I also invite you to notice if you are outlawing your own freedom in any way, for you are a person too and I believe in your freedom. Thank you. Nora Ludden will be speaking next. She and her husband, Tony, joined Wes in the spring. They have a daughter, Anira, four and a half. Uh, she has started an initiative about making Wes a welcoming congregation. And uh, Nora, thank you. Good morning, everybody. How many of you marched last week? Yeah, all right, good job. Um, very nice. Uh, I went on plenty of marches, like somewhat similar to that when I was a kid in the 80s with my dad. And at that time, it was an act of real courage. Um, a lot of people criticized him for bringing us along, and there were some incidents. Um, now I feel like, especially in a community like this, that there might be a little bit of embarrassment about not marching, and that some of you might be trying to make excuses for why maybe you weren't there. Um, I think that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> the Welcoming Congregation project that uh, we're starting work on, you're going to hear me talk about it quite a lot, um, <laughs> if you're around me at all. Um, is basically, it's part of the Unitarian Universalist Association, grants the seal of, of approval on any congregation, any member congregation, which we are because of our dual membership, who completes a series of steps. There are 16 steps. Some of them are pretty involved to demonstrate that we are inclusive of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender uh, folks in our congregation. Um, it's a lovely accreditation. It's always nice to have an extra seal of approval. It will give us a little more of a high, a little more recognition within uh, the Unitarian uh, group, and it will help maybe attract some people to this to this congregation. But I, I think that beyond that, it is really a very important exercise for us to do, and really demonstrates 
our, our commitment to some of the core values of ethical culture. That, that we not only accept people of a variety of sexual orientations and gender identities, but we actually celebrate that diversity within our congregation and the unique gifts that those people have to offer us. The, uh, the novelist Jennifer Levin uh, once said that, and others have noted as well, that, um, that heterosexual people often get together because of societal pressure. Um, they marry for legal, practical reasons, um, unplanned pregnancy, and will have a lot of social supports to stick together when things are hard, um, even if they're not particularly uh, excited about one another years later. Same-sex couples, on the other hand, have to fight actively against social barriers. They are often rejected by their communities, by their families. Um, they sacrifice their safety, job security, etc. And the only reason why many couples stay together for decades is out of love, pure love, fighting against all of these incredible obstacles. Um, there, there is quite a lot to learn there. At my, I did not march last week um, for fear of preterm labor, really. And, but my daughter and I went to the rally afterwards for a short time, and I was so excited to see so many heterosexual couples with strollers. I, it was great. That was definitely a change from when I was a kid. Um, I see within my own generation of parents who all have little kids right now uh, a lot of activism around this issue, actually. We've grown up with people, seen people come out to their families and everything that they went through, and we as parents don't want that to happen to our kids. We, we recognize that our children could grow up to be anything. We don't have any control over that, and not only within our own families, but within the world at large, we want to make sure that there's a safe place for them and that they can be who they are. A lot of debate, of course, is always around whether or not same-sex couples or people of any uh, alternative, whatever, description of yourself, anyone who's not Ward and June, um, is fit to raise children. Can children really grow up healthy without a male and a female role model in the, in the home? I grew up for many years uh, in a family that had two dads and me and my sister. And we knew many other couples, of course. Um, it was a big gay male community that we were a part of. Uh, and I think that my sister and I learned some wonderful lessons from being a part of that. Um, we were not without female role models. Liza and Barbara were always present, um, <laughs> one way or another. Um, but when, uh, when straight people decide to set up housekeeping. I think very often people just default into the traditional gender roles. It's just easier, it's expected. We all come at relationships and pretty much everything with certain assumptions and that we slip into taking on certain chores and tasks within the household because it's expected. Um, these tasks don't always fit up with people's individual skills or talents. And it sometimes can be a source of frustration. There are some couples who actively fight against that very self-consciously, um, really trying not to fall into those traditional gender roles. But that can be exhausting, and it can be a little bit artificial sometimes, too. What I learned from my, my father and his partner and from the other couples that we saw is that whenever a same-sex couple 
decides to move in together. It's, it's a whole new world. It's a completely blank slate. Uh, each one of us is a unique individual with unique gifts, and so any combination of two people is going to be unique as well. So in a household with two adults of the same sex, they, you know, I will do the cooking and balance the checkbook, and you can mow the lawn and do the decorating. Each person takes on what makes sense for them, what makes sense for that, that pair. It really helps to avoid a lot of the frustrations that many couples fall into. And if you are in a heterosexual marriage, same-sex couples are a wonderful role model for you. It will make your marriage stronger to look to them for guidance. Um, also, taking this, this concept of each of us, our individuality, what we bring to things, it can strengthen not just our families, but the world in general as well. And I think that's an important lesson that we need to take out into the world. It is a core value of ethical culture to value the uniqueness of each, each individual. I'm going to read a couple words uh, from Martha Graham, actually. There is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action, and there is only one of you in all time. This expression is unique, and if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. The world will not have it. Have it. it is not your business to determine how good it is, not how it compares with other expression. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to leave the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep open and aware directly to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. When we look at the incredible diversity of humanity, that includes not just... I, sexual orientation and gender identity are often lumped together because they both challenge the core principle that there are only two kinds of people in this world, men and women, and that there is only one way to be a man and one way to be a woman. As we hopefully know from reality, there are billions of ways to be a man and billions of ways to be a woman, and billions of ways to be not quite either of those. We, when we embrace that diversity, stop putting people into boxes, including ourselves. We are not types. We are not categories. We can tap into this vitality that Martha Graham is speaking of and contribute to the world in a much more real way. Now, although I'm talking about this in all kinds of uh, vague uh, kinds of language, some people I know, as liberal-minded as they may be, just may be a little icked out by what goes on in the bedrooms of some other people. Um, that's very honest. It, uh, and you need to own that. What, what we all need to remember, too, though, is that sexuality is very diverse. It, um, it has many kinds of expression, and uh, I'm sure... A, I'm sure we've all accidentally Googled something that um, <laughs> brought up all kinds of things that we weren't expecting. I'm sure any one of us could find all kinds of sexual expression out there that we personally find repulsive within any kind of orientation. There's, um, there's a wonderful novel by Jeanette Winterson called Written on the Body. And it's about this very passionate love affair between this narrator and a woman. And 
there are love scenes in it full of lingering kisses and caresses and uh, many people read this novel without realizing that the, the gender of the main character is never revealed. There is so much in common in the way that we express our love physically. Um, that experience, when we get past the casual demeaning, all of the other kinds of sexuality that might be fun, but not always uh, the most rewarding. I think, I hope all of us know that that um, ecstatic, joyful love made real in physical form brings us some of the happiest moments of our lives. And in this sad, broken world, we need as much of that kind of joy as we can get. Yesterday, my little girl went to uh, the fifth birthday party of a boy in her class, her preschool class. Um, they are very close. They are best friends. Um, his favorite colors are pink and purple. And I think what they mainly have in common is that they both worship the holy trinity of uh, princesses, fairies, and mermaids. They were watching Tinkerbell when I came to pick her up. Um, and I am just, I'm really proud of his parents for, um, for not even pushing that, but for just letting this little boy be who he is, uh, for supporting him in his expression, in his interests. I have a lot of hope for kids like that. And I think all of us, being warm and welcoming towards little boys like that and the men they grow up to be uh, will make this world a much better place. Thanks. Oh, okay. Well, speaking after me will be Perry Sedman. Uh, he's been a member for 20 years. His daughter, Sasha, is going through the Sunday school here. He was a leader on the building campaign. We are enjoying this lovely building right now, thanks to him. Uh, he, also was, he also was pivotal in the leader search, which we are also grateful for, and he's a former member of the Board of Trustees. Well, this will be short and sweet, and I've memorized it. I believe in Wes. I love this. I love being invited to do this. Thank you, Mary. It's a chance to talk about myself. <laughs> being the youngest child, you know, that's what I'm all about, and a Gemini to boot. Well, I do believe in Wes, actually. I believe in the unique capacity of every human being to be loving, caring, and kind. This, my friends, includes Republicans. I believe that Republicans, deep down inside, are just like you and me. They have the capacity to be loving, caring, and kind. You see, I have a lot of empathy for Republicans because, true confession time, I used to be one. 
as my ex-wife Susan discovered to her horror when we were dating back in the mid-80s, I voted for Nixon, Reagan, and George Herbert Walker Bush. To me at the time, yes, it's true, <laughs> they represented the pragmatic side of politics, guys who saw the world as it really was and who could be counted on in a crisis to do the right thing, to act in America's best interests. They were not sissies, they were real men. As a conservative, I ranted and raved against paying higher taxes, against waste in government, against government spending, against welfare cheats, against crime, and the liberal judges who coddled criminals. The Republicans knew the value of hard work, of self-reliance, of making it based on your own efforts. In retrospect, my self-esteem was probably tied to the amount of money I made. Since the harder I worked, the more money I made, I just worked harder and harder to feel better about myself. Compassion for others less fortunate than I was a distant, ephemeral concept. I was an on-rand devotee, having been enamored by Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead. I was Robert Rourke. I viewed myself as having made it totally on my own and by the sheer will of my hard work and perseverance. The only thing holding anyone back, even poor people, was their unwillingness to get off their duff and work hard. And I thought, if I can do this stuff, anyone can. After all, my daddy certainly wasn't rich and didn't give me a thing. Everything I made, I did completely on my own. Didn't I? Of course. I did not realize how advantaged I was, how much I was aided simply by being a middle-class white Jewish male with a stable home life. My father had obtained benefits from serving in the war and was eligible for government-run small business loans. Later on, my mother collected Social Security both as my dad's widow and on behalf of my mentally retarded sister, Linda. My, my mother was by and large a stay-at-home mom. My dad made enough money to afford a house in Shepherd Park, about three blocks from here, where I grew up. Now that my mother has passed away, Linda still receives those monthly checks. I obtained low-cost, government-guaranteed student loans to get through law school. So even as a go-it-alone conservative, there was a lot of community support for my family, although I never really realized it at the time. This enabled me to become the comfortable, middle-class person I am today. I did not go it alone by any stretch of the imagination, again, even though I thought so at the time. Now, after an amazing, life-changing transformation, I went left, so far left that the Democrats were not liberal enough for me. <laughs> although, I <certain> <laughs> <laughs> although I certainly... 
Although I certainly stopped voting Republican, I could not bring myself to vote for Bill Clinton, who I viewed as just another business-oriented president doing the will of the moneyed interests and lobbyists. In 1996, in that presidential election, my then four-year-old daughter, Sasha, was my write-in candidate for president. <laughs> because I thought, and I was serious, that she embodied the ideals that I wanted in a chief executive, mainly empathy for others, kindness, and caring. Sasha is probably the most empathetic person I know. So you might ask, <clears throat> what caused this transformation from a conservative to the flaming liberal I am today? Flaming. Well, I'll tell you the story. The summer before I was to marry Susan, it was 1988, we signed up for a course called wholehearted relationships. She was always making me take courses, <laughs> including relationship building here at West, or intro to relationship building, <laughs> taught by Lynn Wayman. Now this wholehearted relationships course was at the Feathered Pipe Ranch, a vegetarian ranch in Helena, Montana. And it was led by a person named Nancy Klein. Little did I know that Nancy Klein was an ex-guru of something called reevaluation counseling, or RC, which is a form of peer counseling that I know some of you are familiar with. That weekend, I was unknowingly plunged into the world of RC, experiencing it firsthand. I loved it. In fact, I loved it so much that I signed up for an intro to RC course when I got back here to DC. It was taught, of course, in Tacoma Park. <laughs> in short, RC helped me discharge the pain of having shut out those humanistic values and feelings that had remained deeply submerged in my subconscious as I chased after the almighty dollar. I shook, I cried, I yawned, I cried, I trembled, and I cried about the pain in my own life and the pain at the world at large. Having discharged a lot of that pain, I was able to get in touch with who I really was, with my innermost innate values and feelings, and thus began to clearly understand what was important in life and what wasn't. Shortly after I started RC, I left the large law firm that I had started 10 years earlier to try to escape the workaholic lifestyle. And to a great degree, I succeeded. I became a solo practitioner to control my work life and my home life. Even though over the last almost 20 years, my little law firm has grown to 10 people, the culture is that we work hard while we're there, but we're not there all the time. Evening and weekend hours are the exception, not the rule. So simply stated, RC changed my life. I became aware of not only who I was, but of the massive injustice and oppression in the world. 
I found that I had a deep reservoir of compassion and empathy for those less fortunate than I. Now, I believe that Republicans are essentially good people who, like me, had the misfortune to grow up in our capitalistic, competitive, self-centered country and who probably love Ayn Rand. And I also believe that deep down inside every conservative, from Rush Limbaugh to Glenn Beck to Perry Sedman, is a human being, one who is caring, compassionate, and can empathize with fellow human beings, and who I believe can ultimately embrace a humanistic, cooperative outlook, a world of compassion, caring, and love. So be on notice. I believe in Republicans. I understand you guys, and I'm coming after you. <laughs> And now, a person who needs no introduction. <laughs> Jen Watson. She's been a member here for six years. She's a partner with Bridget, her, a mom of Eli. She's a proud member of the West Chorus and a former West board member. But first. Good morning. Some words from Khalil Gibran's The Prophet on children. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts. They have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but you cannot make them just like you. When I first heard this poem in college as a song sung by Sweet Honey in the Rock, I totally understood it from that independent, liberated, late teen perspective. When I was defining myself, coming out both literally and figuratively, my parents were far away and didn't get the details of my daily life. Their thoughts were certainly not my thoughts. And I believed that my soul dwelt in a place that they could hardly imagine, they being in Texas, me in California. Fifteen years later, with a new baby in my arms, this bit of wisdom seemed theoretical, suspect, archaic, a platitude at best. After all, I thought, parenthood is all about the teaching, passing along, sharing wisdom, values, and skills. Understanding, of course, that some things will be absorbed, some rejected, some rebelled against, but nevertheless believing in my sacred responsibility to shape this new being and set him on the right path. So I optimistically read my baby son feminist fairy tales while I was nursing and changed the words of stories and genders of characters to make them more balanced. In our Sing a Song of Sixpence, for example, the queen was in the counting house, the maid was eating bread and honey, and the king was in the garden hanging up the clothes. <laughs> we did our best, too, to hold the line against all forms of guns, swords, and lightsabers. 
I had no illusion that this would last forever, but I did harbor a secret fantasy that we were laying the foundation for peace and love, a gentle sun. Many more years and episodes of fashioning a feminist upbringing ensued, in which our parental delusions of power and influence were shaken occasionally, but minimally. Anybody with teens in their life knows where this is going. <laughs> Fast forward another decade to the present. The tween years are upon us, when parents become less and less relevant. The house of tomorrow where our son's soul will dwell is under construction, and the soundtrack is heavy metal. <laughs> he is deeply passionate about all kinds of metal music, death metal, grindcore, even Viking metal, whatever. <laughs> music that sounds distinctly unlike peace and love. Uh, um, it sounds like this. I'm just going So give me some credit for some audiovisual interest here. <laughs> As you just heard, it's indecipherable in many respects. It's angry sounding, and it's often portrayed with gruesome imagery. The lyrics may be grunted or shouted rather than sung. The guitar and drums are played rapid fire with great technical prowess. As a musician, this is the world our son aspires to, the models he wants to emulate, his potential future, so it seems pretty important to pay attention. At first, I wasn't sure what to think. Where the heck did this come from? What does it mean? Does this music represent our son's inner life, his soul? Should I be alarmed? Luckily, so very luckily for us, Eli shares his music rather than using it as a way to separate himself. He says, Hey, Mom, listen to this. And he sticks an earbud in my ear and the other one in, the, in his ear, and we listen. And sheer curiosity keeps us listening and asking about it and knowing what's on his iPod, which, when you think of it, is really like a secret decoder ring, knowing what's on a person's iPod, because it gives you a window into their inner life. The more we make the effort to hear and appreciate, the more we are allowed into his thoughts and tastes and interests. This past spring, Bridget and I were each able to go to two separate concerts with Eli to get the full, live, heavy metal experience. <clears throat> I girded myself for an evening in rough alien territory, not quite knowing how a middle-aged mom and 12-year-old son would fare, and worrying, of course, about what to wear. As we were walking into the arena, the people around us were welcoming and thought it was kind of cool that we were there, a mom and son together. Around us in our seats, there were a few other kids and parents. The music was a wall of bone-rattling, mesmerizing sound, and the audience was responding with head-banging and devil horns and every swear word you could imagine. Here was a community, though. Is this Eli's community? I could see how much a part of it he felt. He wanted to be in that mosh pit. 
The feel of a community, though, diminished my doubts and fears. It was cool, too, and I got it. I got it, being there with him and to see the way he responded. I cannot now claim the title of metalhead and can only listen in limited stretches to the really screamo stuff, but I have to admit the music has grown on me. There are some metal bands like Disturbed and Killswitch Engage who actually sing that I like and will listen to on my own to get a hit of their powerful attitude. Yeah, there are examples of violence and sexism as in any popular music now, but there are also plenty of soul-searching, funny, loving, righteous, and political songs. So I appreciate this world Eli is traveling in, his avid interest in changing tastes, I see the way he has to stand up for his music in the face of so much misunderstanding, even on the part of his friends. These are things he is showing and teaching me, ways I can strive to be like him, trying the new, not judging from the surface, sticking up for your stuff. And click, I finally get it, at least this lesson about parenting. I believe it's about being along for the ride, glimpsing the thoughts and dreams of this person who is becoming himself to marvel and wonder at the many paths and directions he pursues. I'm beginning to understand that giving love, not, not my thoughts, means appreciating and seeing our children for who they are, opening ourselves to their most unexpected passions, that doing so is the way to building and keeping connections, some common ground with one another. And I think it's flowed the other way too, that Eli understands what it means to appreciate someone else's stuff how good it feels to have that kind of attention. So when I sing in chorus, he is often there, listening, supporting, appreciating the work that went into preparing it and the pleasure I get from singing, whether or not he likes the music. And the ripples spread out in many directions. I see more broadly that one of the greatest gifts of life is opening yourself to the passions, ideas, and interests of people around you, to appreciate what moves them, to see the beauty they find without judgment. I'm striving in that direction. Thank you.